interrogate racial narratives in the fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. This week, we bring you a story of a Richmonder who is now recovering from COVID-19 while having his best friend reach out to anyone that will listen to his story from inside the Richmond City so-called Justice Center. We take you back to February of this year, 2020. Officer Benjamin Frazier of Richmond Police Department reports that for a while, he had been watching Virgil Tucker Jr. But on February the 8th, 2020, Officer Frazier stated that he witnessed Tucker completing a marijuana transaction on Midlothian Turnpike in Richmond, Virginia for a total of $5. For this reason of $5, Officer Frazier of RPD tailed and eventually pulled the car that Virgil Tucker Jr. was riding in, and Tucker repeatedly refused Officer Frazier's request to search the car and their belongings. But Frazier went forward with the search and found marijuana, a firearm, and a ski mask. To this day, Tucker denies any knowledge of a ski mask being in the vehicle, but this piece of evidence is significant because of Tucker's criminal record, which is available to see from all law enforcement that unveils that over 15 years ago, he was convicted of a robbery charge when he was only 18 years old. Three weeks after being slapped with multiple charges, all stemming from an accusation of selling a nickel bag in 2020, the warrant to search the car Tucker was riding in came through just days before his trial. Tucker has been assigned to Judge Bradley Cavado, who allowed the good faith exception to include this evidence that was collected without a warrant that day. Now, here's a quick review. The Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable searches and seizures usually allows a defendant to exclude evidence from a trial if it was unconstitutionally seized. However, there are several exceptions to search and seize rules. One of them involves evidence that law enforcement sees in good faith. If the police make a reasonable, reasonable determined by the judge, mistake in conducting a search, evidence of a crime they find as a result may still be admissible. So back to Virgil Tucker. Per his attorney, the evidence found on his phone is the most damning to his case. The evidence that was obtained without consent, without a warrant until weeks later, has left Tucker's Fourth Amendment's rights violated and his freedom denied. 
Today is September 30th, 2020, and Virgil Tucker Jr. has been incarcerated since February the 8th of this year. By this Friday, October 2nd, he has to decide whether he will sign a plea deal of three and a half years in prison or go to court and face the man as the most known racist judge, allegedly, in the capital of the Confederacy, Judge Cavito. Yes, I'm talking about the judge that had to step aside because of his conflict with the Confederate monument case. That judge. Later on, we speak to Christopher Rashad Green with New Virginia Majority about the action this Saturday to protest the conditions inside Virginia Department of Corrections right after we hear from Virgil Tucker Jr.'s best friend, Jessica Moore, as she shares his battle of not only the modern-day plantation for profit scheme, but the COVID-19 pandemic inside the walls of the Richmond City so-called Justice Center. But this week, Race Capital is doing something new, and we're going to do a Race Capital reframe with highlights from local, national, and global news and defending Black lives. Stay tuned. Chelsea Higgs Wise, and you're back with Race Capital, and we're diving into national news. The nation has moved on to discussing the next Supreme Court pick after the death of RBG. President Trump's third nominee to the Supreme Court is Amy Coney Barrett. The nominee process is moving ahead at warp speed, and the court is much closer to having a 6-3 conservative majority. Now, the former Notre Dame law professor is on record stating that the decision to uphold the Roe v. Wade was not decided correctly. She's also a former aide to Scalia and is likely to expand gun laws and kill Obamacare. Over the last couple of days, we have witnessed two events that were both not shocking yet deeply disturbing. And they were, number one, hearing that the occupant of the White House only paid $750 in federal income taxes. And then number two, late last night, we the people of the United States held the event that they call the presidential debate. Blase, blase, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Last night, I also held a bottle of sparkly and slowly sketched out my plan for the end of days. Moving on to international news, the world COVID-19 death rate officially has reached 1 million people. And as the world manages COVID-19, many countries now weave in the pandemic with their local struggles. All right, y'all, here's your trigger warning. Reports of sexual violence are to follow. BBC Africa reports that the World Health Organization has pledged to investigate allegations that aid workers tackling the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo have sexually abused and exploited women. WHO and other aid agency staff were accused by 50 women in a joint investigation by two news agencies. Local women were allegedly plied with drinks, ambushed in hospitals, forced to have sex, and two became pregnant. The allegations cover the period between 2018 and March of this year. 
the New Humanitarian News Agency and the Thompson Rutgers Foundation have carried out an almost year-long investigation. In local news, Richmond Public Defenders are now screaming, Show me the money! That's because Richmond Public Defenders make almost 40% less on average than their counterparts in the prosecutor's office. The Public Defender's Office used the Freedom of Information Act request to obtain and compare salary data. Among their findings, 27 of their 29 attorneys make less than the highest paid administrative assistant in the prosecutor's office. Well, this past Monday, Richmond City Council passed a resolution to bring the pay of public defenders to equal the pay of prosecutors. Now, of course, resolutions are fun in the way that they are only symbolic, <laughs> but should bring awareness to the structure of Richmond's criminal injustice system that is set up to literally disinvest in the people's defense. Way to go, Richmond. So more in the world of we're definitely living in the Confederacy, this past Thursday, Sheriff Irving held a virtual town hall to discuss the COVID conditions in the Richmond City so-called Justice Center. According to the Facebook stream, Sheriff Irving did not provide an update to the number of positive COVID cases. At the start of the month, there was a total of 91 positive cases at the Richmond City Justice Center. Irving says the residents of the jail are tested regularly, thanks to the assistance from the Virginia Department of Health and private companies but says the jail is in need of machines that can help sanitize the jail more thoroughly. Irving goes on to say that we need equipment to be able to properly sanitize and disinfect. There are machines out there to be able to do that, but the price tag on those machines that can clean a pod by themselves will cost us about $4,000, Irving said. Okay, Race Capital listeners, let's keep that same energy and dive into this week's episode of Race Capital. We should all interrogate the societal cost of human life that Sheriff Irving is willing to risk and has risked by avoiding the public safety equipment for our loved ones still locked away. Or we could just free them all and bring them home. Up next is our interview with Jessica Moore as she introduces us to Virgil Tucker Jr. My name is Chelsea Higgs-Wise and you're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP. 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned. Today on the show, I want to welcome Jessica Moore. Thank you. Um, Jessica Moore, I met on the Twitter world. What got you on Twitter? Um, mainly what brought me onto Twitter was the fact that my best friend was expressing some concerns about what was going on within the Richmond City Justice Center um, about the COVID outbreaks and things that were going on in there. And he wanted to bring it more to the public attention. And even though my platform is very small, <laughs> I knew that there were others that had a larger platform that could also get the message out there. So that was what really brought me to Twitter. 
And, you know, at WRIRLP 97.3 FM, we talk about a tiny but mighty mic. And uh, that's definitely what's happening from your Twitter platform. Uh, you mentioned your best friend is currently incarcerated at the Richmond City Justice Center. Is that correct? That's correct. And what is your friend's name? His name is Virgil Tucker. Virgil Tucker. Well, uh, before we get too far into what's happening inside the so-called Justice Center. Would you mind telling us a little bit about Virgil? Virgil, <laughs> he is, I'm trying to think of the best word to describe him. Um, he, he's very, very optimistic, very caring, very loving, big heart. He was very much involved in the community when he was home. Um, He's a, probably my biggest cheerleader, I would definitely say. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it to describe him. Yeah. So uh, a happy guy involved within his community. Yes. Um, loves kids. Loves the youth. Uh, what part of Richmond are you all from? So I am not originally from Richmond. I'm originally from Charlottesville. Um, the irony of this. <laughs> I'm originally from Charlottesville. But I relocated to Richmond in 2010, and I've been here since then. He's actually not originally from Richmond either, um, but he did grow up here and from middle school on until he graduated. He's originally from Trinidad. Mm. And what part of Richmond has he been staying in? Um, in the South Side. South Side. Okay. We have your best friend, Virgil. He's inside right now. And how long has he been inside the Richmond City so-called Justice Center? He's been there since February of this year. What happened to really bring your voice um, to Twitter to really amplify his? Um, so what really brought me to it was the fact that what started the whole thing was the jail asking for inmates to clean COVID positive jail pods. Mm -hmm. That was the number one thing that brought me to it. Um, and when did that start? In June. In June of this year. Yeah, the beginning of June. It was him and about four other gentlemen, his cousin who gave me the okay to name him too, Angelo Long. Those two were heavily involved in the cleaning. They weren't given a choice. They weren't asked whether or not, you know, if this is something that they wanted to do. It was more so of a demand. You guys have to go and clean these pods. Um, they weren't given proper PPE. They were given a bucket of water and bleach mixed together, an old cloth, like a cut up t-shirt to clean the surfaces and another like cut up t-shirt as a mask. And that was it. And he was just upset because he's like, these people are putting me at risk. I'm going into these COVID positive jail pods and I'm not getting any protection from keeping myself from getting sick at all. Mm -hmm. And there was an instance where they, the group of men saw hazmat suits in one of the sheriff's offices and they were asked, why can't we have a hazmat suit? And they basically told them that they were for inmates that were leaving the jail and going out into the public, into the courts to protect the public, which mm. was ridiculous. Because <laughs> I'm like, wouldn't you want to protect them because they're going out into the public where it's more widespread and then absolutely not no concern on protection for the people inside right. I mean that sends a very particular and oppressive message yeah. to the people that are incarcerated there what they're valued what their life is valued so while we are out here saying black lives matter 
it's really important for us to look at how those that have really been thrown away by our society right now, how their lives are mattering. Right. So that happened in June. And how long were they cleaning? How many pods did they have to clean? Um, It lasted for a while. I think they cleaned their last jail pod in maybe like the second week of August. Um, He said they cleaned a total of six pods, um, which there are just to give a a larger aspect. When When you think of a pod, you think of like a small area, not really a small area there within the Richmond City Justice Center, a pod holds 60 to 70 men or women. So think of how many people could have come in contact with that COVID positive person and what things they touched. I mean, that just paints a bigger picture as far as like how quickly it spread and things like that. So it doesn't sound like they were given proper PPE to clean the COVID pods. So what does it look like just on a regular basis with protecting people that are incarcerated inside as far as PPE? They don't even, they can, um, they don't, they have not given them masks. If they want a mask, they have to purchase it from commissary. So when I do our video visits, you know, I can see everything that's like around. Mind you, the sheriffs and the deputies are walking around. They have masks on, but the inmates themselves, no, they don't have on masks at all. How much is a mask? I am not sure. I would like to know. (laughs) I'd be interested to know. I would be interested to know too. Right now they don't have access to their tablets. So I can't even like text him and ask him. So what is access normally like for someone in the Richmond city justice center um, for folks that may not understand what it's like normally, what it's like now, what is it like for you as having a loved one inside? So normally Um, They have, they provide tablets in the jail. Not everyone has one, but there's enough that almost everyone in the pods have one. Um, And you can do video visits from 8.30 a.m. until 6 o'clock p.m. And then they can do text messages, texting from the um, app from same time, 8.30 until about 10 p.m. though. And they can call from the tablets and stuff like that. But it's changed a lot. They have been taking away a lot of their privileges versus giving them more just because there are people that are on the outside that are talking to their loved ones that are on the inside. And it's, you know, telling them, giving them information about what's going on out here. They're then asking questions. So the deputies feel like you shouldn't be asking me anything. So then they start taking away privileges and like, just like as of right now, he has not had access to his tablet since Sunday. What is the reason right now he hasn't had access? So what, what do they tell him? Um, they have to earn it back. Do you mind sharing what was the reason why he got it taken? Yeah, so there was an instance that happened Saturday where someone was questioning what was going on, you know, with the COVID situation and the protocols and things because they've still been doing a lot of shifting moving inmates in and out of the pods people Mm. are being transferred he just told me today they're moving us again and I'm like why (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and somebody just you know 
ask the question, like, why do y'all keep moving us? Like, there are still people that are being brought into the jail from the outside that have been arrested the night before or earlier today that are coming in that could have been exposed to somebody with COVID and you guys are bringing them back in here or bringing them in here and moving us around. And they got upset because they're asking questions, legitimate questions that they should be privy to answers to. And they're just not being helpful at all. So when they ask those questions, the responses to take away their access to the outside, literally, okay, well, you want to ask you all these questions. I'm going to take this back and you have to earn it back. Yep. That's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what does earning it back look like? Um, that I am not really a hundred percent sure on. I'm pretty sure it's just, you know, complying with whatever it is that they're asking them to do or to not do, and then kind of showing good behavior. And then they give them back as they feel like they have earned it. On their own discretion. At their own discretion, 100%. I'm sure that feels like justice. Yeah. The Richmond City Justice Center. Um, how is your best friend? How is Virgil? How is Angelo? How are, how are their spirits? They are good. They actually did eventually end up catching COVID. Oh. <laughs> um, and, but they're good now. Um, Virgil is still, I mean, he's, he's, he's fighting the fight while he's in there. He's not confrontational at all, but if he feels like that he has a question and he should get an answer to it, he'll ask. And, you know, there's, they're just not wanting to answer anything. Angela was actually was sent to the hole to solitary confinement for about a week last week because he asked a question about protocol. <laughs> I was actually on the phone when it happened. Um, he had asked a question and all I could hear Virgil on the other end of the phone was they're dragging him out of here. They're dragging him out of here. There was a inmate that went down to where the hole is. I'm assuming that their medical um, facility is located in the lower level, like where their intake is. And he said he saw Angelo in there and he was strapped to one of those chairs. Um, I don't even know what you call them but he was just strapped to like one of those a restraint. Yeah. Restraint. restraint basically. Yeah. Um, he was strapped to one of those chairs and that was after he had already been down there for three days. So then when he came back up there, I talked to him just for like a split second. Cause they're not supposed to share calls or whatever, but I um, talked to him for a second and he was like, yeah, they didn't feed me or give me food for the first like three days that I was there locked in intake and they can't say that it didn't happen because there's a way that you can look up to find out where someone's located and I was able to see where he was in the facility and it said intake and he's been there since last year so why would he be an intake but <laughs> do you remember what the question was that he asked that got him dragged out of the pod I don't remember what the question was. I, didn't, I couldn't really hear him. I could just hear the commotion after the fact. But it was, a, it was just a simple question about protocol. Yeah. He's very quiet, very reserved. He's not the type of person to like start confrontation either. Right. Um, they're kind of like, you know, we got each other's backs type of thing. And Virgil is definitely the calm out of the three of us, I could say. Mm -hmm. And he keeps us all sane. So I'm pretty sure that it wasn't anything too crazy. 
Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you know that they would like for you to share or for us to hear directly from them? They just want people to keep putting, putting, putting it out there what's going on. And that if they see me or anyone else tweet about it, post it on Facebook, whatever, to just share it. Because there are people that are unaware. Um, Sheriff Irving is putting out false information. Um, she's not giving facts <laughs> at all. And they just want their voices to be heard and not the voice of somebody who's being backed by a legal team. Mm. And they're recovering from COVID and they're doing well, I yes. presume. Okay. Yeah. Just check in on that. And is there anything that we can do to support you and their loved ones out here? I would definitely say that you can write them. Um, they love to get supporting letters, um, messages to their apps when they have access to them, <laughs> um, messages and things like that. And then also calling down to the sheriff's office, putting it out there, either tweeting the mayor or whatever the case may be, just putting it out there that they have a support system outside of the people that love them. Just that there are a community of people standing behind them and not just them, but every single other inmate in there because no matter what their criminal history is no matter what they have done in the past or what they're in there for or what they're awaiting trial for they're still people they're someone's brother sister aunt it doesn't matter somebody loves them that's out here and i mean what would you do if it was the, if the shoe was on the other foot mm-hmm. if it was someone that you love i mean i'm just hearing you and you mentioned earlier that you know your best friend really keeps you sane and mm-hmm. keeps all of you all sane. Yes. Somehow when um, our folks get incarcerated, the larger society tends to forget their contributions that are lost. Right. And people judge their contributions based mm-hmm. on income or taxes that we can see. Right. Yep. But it's something and bigger. It's, it's definitely something bigger. I mean, there are things that me and Virgil are working on to prepare him for when he comes home as far as his entrepreneurship, what he wants to pursue when he comes home. And I mean, there are, there's a lot bigger things. These are still, you know, contributing people to society. And I think that people seem to forget that. Okay, Jessica, before you get out of here, I've got to ask you, um, what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy? I utilize my privilege by my number one passion, um, which would be preventing recidivism. Mm. Um, So I use my privilege to speak out about that, being as though me and Virgil talk about this a lot. I would have what someone would call a light criminal history. And I use that to advocate for those who may have a stronger criminal history, Mm. who come back out into society and try to create a better life for themselves. Um, so I use my privilege, my privilege and my platform for that. Mm-hmm. Um, being somebody who works in corporate HR, I definitely try to use that to, the, to their advantage, help them write resumes, help them get in touch with companies that are selling friendly, mm-hmm. help them with interview training and things like that. And that's just what I do because that's, that's what I'm passionate about. And I don't feel like that a lot of felons or even anybody with a criminal history gets a fair chance when it comes to 
wanting to definitely rehabilitate themselves. Right. So, because obviously Jill is not rehabilitating. <laughs> but, um, and it was not designed to be. It was not. <laughs> right. um, and so white supremacy in this Confederate state of Virginia, <laughs> I try to educate. I'm pretty sure that most white supremacists, they, when they think of black people, they think of black culture, they automatically think negative, obviously, and they think aggressiveness and things like that. So I try to use my intelligence, my education to fight back. I use my voice. I stand up to them. There's not a single person, no matter what ground they stand on, that can come to me and tell me that I'm less than. Because obviously, as history shows, that it was Black people that were the original royals, and we taught them how to govern. Mm. So (laughs) it was our people that taught them that. And I just fight back against white supremacy by, again, using my voice and then walking out of the house and wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt or having a sticker on my car that says Black Lives Matter. Because I want to be able to put it in their face that we're not going anywhere. No matter what your president says, (laughs) we're not going anywhere. We're staying here and you're going to learn to respect us and you're going to learn to appreciate all the things that we did for this country because it was because of us that they have the platform that they have now. Mm. On the backs of Blacks. Absolutely. We built this country and we have every single right to tear it down Mm. because our ancestors built it for free. Come on. And now we're taxing it. (laughs) Put that extra equity tax on there. Exactly. We are here for it. Well, thank you so much, Jessica Moore. How can the people follow you on Twitter so that we can retweet? Um, So my Twitter account is just almost Jess ESQ. So like ESQ as an Esquire, um, because I am a law student. (laughs) So um, it's just almost Jess ESQ um, on Twitter. Thank you for being the advocate. Thank you to your friends. Please let them know that they absolutely have support on the outside and will continue to be on the lookout and listening to how to continue to support you all. Thank you so much. I appreciate you allowing me to speak on this and give Virgil and Angelo and everybody else that's in the Richmond City Justice Center and all other correctional facilities a voice. You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio with me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise on Race Capital. Stay tuned as we continue to talk about the current conditions of COVID and the Richmond City so-called Justice Center. Thanks for listening to Race Capital. My name is Marquise Hunt, and I'm reading the words of Ascari Donzo, who was incarcerated in the North River Correctional Center in Grayson County, Virginia, And this is titled, When Is My Punishment Unconstitutional? There was a time prisoners didn't have rights. In fact, prisoners in America were considered slaves to the state after the Civil War. 
It wasn't until the late 60s that prisoners obtained rights. That is, prisoners were recognized as citizens and not slaves, albeit with the limited citizenship status. We don't have the same constitutional protections and guarantees as you all free because we're being punished for our criminal activity. This means that our interest as citizens of this state and nation has to always be balanced with the prison's interest in security, public health, economic efficiency, and rehabilitation. This is the context you have to have when examining the pandemic and the corrections agency's response to it. Recently, Deerfield Correctional Center in Capron, Virginia, was the latest prison in the state to have an outbreak. The difference this time is that not only have hundreds of people been infected, but 14 people have lost their lives. This brings the number of prisoners that have been infected to over 3,000 and the VDOC prisoners death toll to 29. Along with the continual outbreaks in VDOC, there's also been several outbreaks in jails, federal detention centers, and even juvenile facilities throughout the state. All of this proves one thing, that there's really no way to protect people in prison from being infected with COVID-19. Since staff and prisoners aren't being tested regularly, and staff are also allowed to decide how they behave when in society, prisoners are sitting ducks just waiting on a staff member to bring the virus in. Many staff here at River North admit that they don't wear a mask outside of here, and I'm sure they're not socially distancing either. With so many scientists acknowledging that there's very little knowledge about COVID, including the actual long-term consequences of the virus, the question is when should it be considered cruel and inhumane to leave someone in prison to be punished? From a legal perspective, prisoners are protected by the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which prohibits the infliction of cruel and unusual punishments on Americans. The Supreme Court has recognized that if prison officials deprive prisoners of a serious human need or knowingly subject prisoners to a substantial risk of serious physical and or mental harm, then that prisoner's punishments becomes unconstitutional. In this case, prisoners have a need to live in a safe and healthy environment. And if you're not regularly testing staff, you're placing us at a substantial risk of getting sick with an incurable disease. With this in mind, citizens and governments have to question the humanness of incarceration in general and definitively mass incarceration as it's been operated for the last 25 years in Virginia. What we know now is that Virginia's truth and sentencing policy that's produced a 62% African-American prison population has left us black men and women with longer sentences and longer stays in prison over the last 25 years. Now is the time to really examine the fairness of this criminal justice policy as we watch again a major racial disparity in COVID-19 infections and deaths in all of Virginia's incarceration facilities. Let's end what has been proven to be a racist truth and sentencing policy and immediately examine all prisoners' cases against the need to keep them in prison to suffer unconstitutional punishment. Black Lives Matter.
Next on Race Capital today, we have Christopher Rashad Green joining us from New Virginia Majority. Welcome. How are you doing, Chelsea? Greetings. Greetings. And I feel like everyone I know that's in this work and just in the community knows who you are, but tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your work. I've been in Richmond for about 25 years now, uh, coming out of New Jersey, and I'm a formerly incarcerated individual, a returning citizen. And it was about 10 years ago, the last time I was incarcerated. And from that point on, my journey has been one of redemption and just serving folks. And my mission is to help other people. Mm-hmm. And so that led me into Richmond, where I plugged into my present employer, New Virginia Majority, and became an organizer and started addressing a lot of the issues around criminal justice. I also wear other hats in the community. I do commemorative justice with VCU. And what is commemorative justice for listeners? Commemorative justice, historical justice. I'm actually on one of the family representative council members of the East Marshall Street Well Project. Uh, This is about years ago. There some remains were found of enslaved folks and poor folks, which were used for medical purposes. Basically, it ended up body snatching. Mm -hmm. This happened back in the 1800s. And so now we have formed a, a coalition and a project, East Marshall Street Well Project, which has addressed this. So I'm actually part of the representative council, which represents the descendants. We're just representing the remains. Mm-hmm. And so since 2017, we have been meeting and having workshops and uh, presenting recommendations on how that's handled. So now we're going to memorialize the site where they were found. We want to have a, a beautiful West African ceremony for those remains. Mm-hmm. And then further study on that, further study on and be more transparent about the history of BCU. Right. Grave robbing and body snatching. Wow. So that's just an, one of your other hats. Yeah. I've worked <laughs> on economic justice and food justice also. and But primarily, my path has led me to working criminal justice issues as a lead organizer with New Virginia Majority. Mm-hmm. And it's so important that as we are in the streets, really defending Black lives, that as we do this, we're continuing to lift the voices with the real experience of the most impacted of of organizing and realizing the privilege of never having that experience and making room to ensure that those that have are having the lead and having real decision-making powers within we're moving forward. And I think that's why becoming an organizer, uh, one of the most basic, uh, most precious uh, concepts of organizing for me, I think that are really sacred is relationship building as an organizer. And so doing a lot of voter registration work uh, years ago, being out in the community every day, I established a lot of relationships. And as an organizer, you want to lift folks up. So, you know, the, the role was, you know, custom fit for me to be an organizer. Mm-hmm. Lift folks up and value the lived experience. But my lived experience is what I went through for 40 years, 15 years of incarceration, homelessness, substance abuse, uh, mental health issues, all that I went through. And so I've been blessed to get to this point to help other folks to try to navigate through those issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so today in 2020, so much going on. What does your work look like this year? Oh, Chelsea. Uh, first, I had to say I'm really blessed because my immediate family and I haven't been affected physically by the pandemic. I don't think I've had any close family members have, have been affected by it. But the work, that the organizing work, basically just did a 180 
because as an organizer, we're in the community. I became very, I was very proximate, like to be in the community. I became an extrovert. But the pandemic made me become, you know, an introvert. I had to stay home. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the work needed to go on. And I have to share this. When this first happened back in March, uh, I said we need to start preparing right now. We can't wait and see what's going to happen. So as an organizer, I started thinking about down the line, how can we still engage folks? Mm -hmm. And so we went to a digital concept. We started using the digital platform mm -hmm. and social media platforms, which has been challenging. Um, but we've been, I think we've been successful over the, since April, since April of this year. Mm -hmm. We still onboard the members. We're still uh, providing, you know, uh, providing that space for community members to come in and share their thoughts and to be engaged. So I think it's more challenging for me, uh, as I said, for me personally mm -hmm. and for our organization, it was challenging. So we had just basically went into our campaign. We were running a constitutional amendment campaign and we had just launched it. And then COVID happened, but we've been able to maintain some some uh, some traction on it. I think we're doing great work right now with our, especially our community members. And before I go on, I have to share this. The last time I spoke, I did a public speaking. I didn't give props to my uh, my teammates. Those community members were actually because New Virginia majority is basically membership driven and membership led. So the members, all the work that we do is done by community members. So I always have to make sure that they're lifted up. And, show, and, and let people know that community members are doing all this great work that you may see is not me by myself. It's, we have a great team of individuals. There's, we are actually supporting a constitutional amendment campaign to remove the felony clause from the constitution which disenfranchises folks from voting. And it's a two year process. For, so we started our campaign, we started building, organizing around it in November of 2019. So now this upcoming session, we're hoping to mobilize, you know, hundreds of folks to support this, this campaign and this change of Virginia's racist constitution. Well, we will look forward to following you there and invite you back to share that good word. Right now, this episode, we are focused on the, our brothers, sisters, comrades, siblings that are inside the Richmond Center, the Richmond City so-called Justice Center. And we're thinking about those across the Commonwealth, across the Virginia Department of Corrections that are fighting the pandemic of the racist industrial complex of the prison for profit, as well as this pandemic. Um, tell us a little bit about your work there and, and how people can get involved this Saturday coming up to put some resistance and pressure on the powers that be. As you stated, the situations inside prisons and jails are horrific. And I'm sure you have, and many of our members, we, even our members have been impacted that have loved ones inside. And uh, we, since April, New Virginia Majority, I'm gonna say our Right to Vote campaign, and we have members who are leaders called Right to Vote, and our Right to Vote chapter here in Richmond. We've been addressing this since April, uh, what's going on in the prison. So we have actually been uh, demanding from the governor and from Secretary Moran to, to correct the situation. It was initially to release those individuals who they supposedly identified as being you know, eligible for what the DOC called their early release program, in which they had identified 1,800 people to be released during the pandemic. And of course, it's only at 800 right now. Excuse me, it's 848 have been released as of today. Uh, 578 from the prisons, and 269 from the jails. They've really been slow about it. So what we've been doing, 
mobilizing folks in the community to come out and continue to demand that the Secretary Moran and the Commonwealth expedite that process. We've actually had our members, you know, community members have met with Secretary Moran and with his uh, undersecretary. And we went through the process. We, we, you know, we aired what we thought was going on and they listened, uh, but they didn't really address it. They didn't come up with any solutions. I want to go back to just make sure I heard you that since April, mm-hmm. out of the 1800 people that they had identified, only 800 plus have been released yes. in six months. Yes. Not even half of the list. Yes. Mm-hmm. And is this early release program the one that you had a year or less? Yes. Yes. So they're really good. Okay. I, yes. so, okay. There okay. Just, challenges. They said challenges with processing these COVID claims. Uh, they they looked over basically over three thousand the people that they actually did intake on and review these files. But it was the criteria, and one of our members, uh, who very you know very uh, knowledgeable of the process, said that the 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 restrictions that were placed on them, the criteria, the criteria was really unrealistic um, to be to be you know to qualify for early release. Right, right. Even though they only had under a year, there were still these different uh, qualifiers that were really unrealistic, right. or basically seemingly like were meant to really were barriers because if you're going to release folks, but you're going to still hold their record against them, whether it be the institutional record or the original charge, you're defeating the whole purpose then of even instituting the program. So Christopher Rashad, as someone that has lived through the Virginia Department of Corrections, as someone that's now organized around the Virginia Department of Corrections, are you surprised by their response in this pandemic? No. No, it's about transparency, mm-hmm. and they've never been. DOC has will never has never been that transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've learned that you know certain branches of our government there really is no civilian oversight as we're trying to get more oversight on our um, criminal justice system mm-hmm. here in Richmond. I've I've seen you advocate for community review, review boards. Mm-hmm. That civilian oversight is crucial, but we know law enforcement, the military, and, the, and those prisons they don't want civilian oversight. They don't no. really want. So it's about, they're really not transparent. And right. I'm, I'm not really surprised, you know, stories I hear inside, I'm really not surprised. I think that many folks in Virginia do not realize how awful Virginia's criminal justice reform, policies, incarceration numbers, how just how horrific we are in the greater scheme of things. There have been states that have released thousands of people that are incarcerated. We're here in Virginia, we have not even reached 1,000 people. And here as a majority Democratic legislature in both chambers, I know folks are really starting to ask some real questions. And, and that's why we've always, for the last six months, we've actually been in touch. We have a right to vote coalition of coalition members that are pushing for our amendment campaign, but we're also uh, we've also implemented a, what we call our Protect Our People campaign. Hmm. Which we actually, it's a mini campaign within the campaign which actually addressed this issue. Like I said, stories have been coming out of all these major institutions. Yeah. Uh, one example is a young lady who's a member who has two, two children in, in one institution. And one of the, the younger one caught COVID. And, so, and she's formerly incarcerated herself, 10 years incarcerated. 
So all that, and it's just so traumatizing. Yeah. Uh, and then the fact, I want to speak on the fact you talked about the jail and now that criminal court, you know, jury trials have been suspended. Yeah. So guys are sitting in. So now we're looking at so many constitutional violations uh, of legal assistance, uh, having access to, to legal assistance and then having a speedy trial. All that's been suspended. So you're sitting in there. I know an individual in, right in jail now, been there a year waiting to go to trial. Wow. So now you're being held in during the pandemic in those conditions right. in the jails. And then you have DOC inmates in the jails also. Right, right. So we have known the, even though we address the Department of Corrections in our campaign, we look, you can't oversee, you, know, you can't, you cannot think about the jails. Right. So tell us about what is happening this Saturday. What we call right to vote. Now our members, our member leaders, those community folks, they have decided to have a rally um, basically a protest to what's going on with Secretary Moran and the Commonwealth is basically to amplify this message of bringing those folks home. It's basically a bring them home rally where we're going to get there and we have folks that are going to speak, those folks who are directly impacted or formerly incarcerated, folks who have just have been released currently, you know, we're inside and been released since the pandemic, folks who have loved ones inside, so they'll be there. I hope we'll have supporters, our allies will be there informed incarcerated folks. We make sure some earned media is there. So we really want to lift this up. Yeah. We realize that the Commonwealth and basically the nation is this is something they're really ignoring. There's not really a lot of media scrutiny or even a question about what's going on. They're really going under the radar. So we really need to amplify this message. I've been saying that the issues they've been ignoring and amplifying, ignoring is actually our rent and amplifying our shelter in the jails. It's like they may not want to house us unless it's in the jails and prisons. And I've seen you doing the work in the evictions realm as well. Thank you for that. Um, that is another hard one specifically for Virginia as well. Um, but give some details on Saturday. What time and place can everyone meet you? And it's kind of funny because we were in our planning session, our members decided to come up with Maggie Lee Walker, Maggie Lena Walker statue. Uh, they thought that would be so appropriate for the work she did in the community for yep. poor folks and disenfranchised folks. So we'll be meeting at, at Broad Street and Adams Street, Broad and North Adams, right at the Maggie Lee Walker statue, Maggie Lena Walker statue. Uh, we'll be there from 1 p.m. to about 3. Like I said, we're gathering folks, we'll have some speakers allow folks to share their testimony and we'll make a lot of noise and just make sure that they hear us. We want to make sure that folks hear us. We want to continue to push this message. So at 1 p.m. Saturday, October 3rd at the Maggie Lena Walker statue. All right. There'll be New Virginia Majority's Protect Our People campaign run by our Right to Vote chapter here in Richmond. That's beautiful. And before I get you out of here, I've got to ask you, what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? My privilege, if, it is, if we would call it that, is in my journey, I've reached a status where I'm becoming self-sufficient. I'm actually living life on life terms. So I'm really blessed. I have really, every aspect of my life has been elevated. Um, it's such a great space. So I make sure that I'm not looked upon as the exceptional Negro. Uh, I want to make sure that, that white folks don't try to use that as what we call black exceptionalism. Like if Christopher can do it, anybody can do it. No, because Christopher is still in transition. So mm -hmm. I want to make break that myth of white supremacy as like 
certain Negroes are going to elevate themselves and mm -hmm. everybody can do it. So don't worry about the rest who don't make it. Because we have one good Negro here who's doing the work and he's elevating and no, because I'm representing those who, who aren't in this space. Right. You know, we're going through them challenges. And as a founder, I just founded a, a new nonprofit reentry program. Okay. Founding director is called Freedom Unlimited Incorporated. Nice. Which will be launching very soon, uh, probably in the fall. But okay. we are gonna we have a reentry curriculum doing looking at transformative and holistic practices towards reentry. Beautiful, beautiful. There is definitely a gap of that here in Richmond. So I'm really excited that you are stepping into that and really taking all of your hats that you're wearing, right? And, and pouring it into one space. Great. That's a great analogy. I like that. And you, you told us at the beginning, all of your hats. And that really is, is exactly the space that you can pour all of that in to really build someone up holistically, right? The whole person. Not just the issue or whatever building they're sending us to to try and navigate us that day, oh. right? Oh, you hit it right on the nose. As a social worker, I hear you, Christopher Rashad. I hear you. One more time before we get out of here, tell the people where and when to meet you on Saturday. Join us on October 3rd, Saturday at 1 p.m. at Broad and North Adams Street, where the Maggie Lena Walker statue is situated. And we'll join us there that afternoon for our Protect Our People rally. We're gonna amplify our message for the Commonwealth and Secretary Brian Moran to expedite the release of all those individuals who are locked up in Virginia's prisons and jails. That's right. Y'all are getting out the message to the Virginia's top cop, Brian Moran. Thank you for that work. And where can people follow up with New Virginia Majority? On our website at www.newvirginiamajority.org. Or they can join us on social media on our Facebook page, New Virginia Majority's Right to Vote for All campaign page. We have our members and allies are joining us on that page. Perfect. And we will put the link in our description of this episode. One more time, thank you again, Christopher Rashad Green of New Virginia Majority. And we will see you out there in the streets. Peace. Yesterday, the Richmond Police Department rioted, assaulting and beating students in the streets. And this isn't the first time that we have been victims to the state-sanctioned abuse. It isn't the second time. It isn't the third time. We have been out here protesting police brutality since late May, only to be met with increased brutality from the officers they swear are here to protect us. We've been out here risking our own freedom, pleading with those in power to treat us like our lives matter, only to be faced with charges tear gas and villainization. I've watched my friends be terrorized by these officers night after night. The conditions don't change. Last night, we showed up to stand in solidarity with the convicted class of the Richmond City Justice Center after hearing reports that those on the inside were being mistreated for simply demanding the medical care they so desperately need to, to protect themselves from COVID. We were beaten, detained, some of us kidnapped and caged in a jailhouse, the very same jailhouse that has an active ongoing COVID outbreak. But we weren't only protesting the inhumanity of the carceral system during a pandemic. We were protesting the inhumanity of a prison state to begin with. Because while this city invests millions of dollars into arming these outside agitators with military weapons to beat us down in the street, 
Thousands of our community members face eviction and hundreds sleep out in our streets each night. Our schools and our roads are collapsing. Children go to bed hungry. That is violence. The, the money that they spend investing in these people who cage us, who seize property from us, who steal our futures with their trumped up charges, that is violence. The Richmond Police Department and the Richmond Sheriff's Office have a combined budget of over $140 million. Gerald Smith, LeVar Stoney, all these failed elected leaders, they continue to ask us to fund the change we want to see. But how can we fund that change when it is entangled in the pockets of their police officers? We, we just spent almost $2 million on overtime for, police, for our police force in which 89% of its officers don't even live in the city. How can we fund the change when they intentionally take money out of our communities? How can we fund any change when they continue to invest our tax dollars into these systems of organized violence and abandonment? How can we fund any change when the moment we raise our voices, they place their knees on our necks and throw us in cages? That's violence. The Richmond Police Department is violent, murderous, and they have yet to reckon with that legacy. And they are intimidated by a class of young black queer youth demanding an end to incarceration and modernized slave patrols. There can be no freedom where slavery exists and the systematic caging of black bodies looks like slavery to me. As abolitionists, we believe that we can rehabilitate people from violence, poverty, and addiction by investing in systems of care. And they like to call that terrorism, but I call it human compassion. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Race Capital. Thank you again to our guests, Jessica Moore, Christopher Rashad Green, Virgil Tucker Jr., Angelo Long, Ascari Danzo, Marquise Hunt, and everybody that is working to free them all and bring them home. We thank you, and we'll catch you next week right here on Race Capital airing on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio.